Dear congregation, let us turn in God's holy word to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. In our Pew Bibles, you can find Hebrews 3 on page 1374. Hebrews chapter 3, we'll read the entire chapter. We already looked at the first six verses, showing that we are to consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ, and to consider how he is superior to that of the faithfulness of Moses, as he was a servant in his house, in Christ's house. And uh, we're going to focus on verses 7 through 19 this morning, where we see not only a comparison between Moses and Jesus, but especially there a contrast between the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and the faithlessness of the Israelites. Let us hear God's word. Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and, I, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that, he would, that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Amen. May God bless the reading of his precious and infallible word. May also bless the exposition of it. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we have been considering in the book of Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, that Christ is superior to all things, and we are called to hear him. Hebrews 1, we recognize that God in times past, in various ways, spoke to us and spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And therefore, in chapter 2, we heard that therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. And in chapter 3 here, we recognize that we are to consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. And now as we begin our text in verse 7, we are also called to hear 
Therefore, the Holy Spirit says. And therefore, we are reminded is to, to probe, us, probe us to ask a question. What is the context of this word, therefore? What has been said before? Yes, indeed, we are to consider Jesus Christ and His faithfulness compared to that faithfulness of Moses, even exposing how it exceeded that of Moses because he is the owner of the house and Moses served diligently in really the house that Jesus Christ has been building throughout time. And we are also recognized as we concluded that part of our sermon last time we looked at Hebrews in verse 6, that we also are God's house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So that moves to a contrast of faithfulness and maybe even what we could call faithlessness. We are called to hold fast that confidence and rejoicing of the hope to the end. We are called to persevere in in verse 14, that's picked up again, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And as I mentioned last time, this comes up again and again in the book of Hebrews. We're going to see that most clearly when we look at Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll focus there on how that it really is, is important for us to hear, not only just to cause us to question in our mind, but even to give us confidence in the Lord and assurance in Him and everything else. So we, we need to remember the truth of this, is that we persevere because of God's preservation of us. He is the one who regenerates us. He's the one who gives us that new birth. He gives us faith. He gives us repentance. And He causes His saints to persevere by His grace. That doesn't mean that He causes His saints to be perfect in this life. Uh, By no means. But He gives them a perseverance in diligently guarding their hearts against sin. Giving faith and hope and joy in the Lord and His salvation. And that truth is a real comfort for us because without that truth, we would all fail, stumble, and perish. But we must also remember that we do do the persevering. And we do persevere through God's means that He gives us. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear His voice. He gives us His Word. He gives us His people to call us to faith and repentance, to cause us to persevere. We must remember that as well. Not only does God do so, but He uses means to do so, and we are active in those means. Maybe I can illustrate this for the, for the children a little bit. Imagine if you were playing outside and you lived next to a very busy road. And your mom would come to you and she would say, don't you go past this line. And that's maybe like quite a ways from the road. Because if you go past this line, you're going to get hit by a car. And you will very likely die. Well, you go playing right up next to that line. And what does your mom do? She hollers out, Get back, get back, get back. And she warns you. She's protecting you. Now, if you cross that line, you probably aren't going to actually get hit by a car because it's quite a ways away. And it's going to give your mom enough time to get there before you actually get to the road where you would get hit. But God's Word comes to us in a similar way, warning us. His warnings are ways of preserving His people and motivating them to preserve to the end. It's maybe, want to use another illustration, it's like a coach of a basketball team. He's got the whistle hanging here. He's watching you play and he starts to see you losing. And it's a game that you should easily win. You're way better than the other team. And he starts to see 
the teammates start to complain and point fingers at each other about doing this wrong and doing that wrong. And you start making excuses for what you're doing. And finally the coach pulls up his whistle and he blows it. He calls a timeout. And he calls you around. He says, now, listen. We're going to lose the game to a team that's inferior to us. If you don't wake up, pay attention, quit complaining, quit pointing fingers, quit making excuses, and encourage one another and play together as a team. Well, this morning, God pulls up His whistle. And He blows it. And He says, today, today, we need to have a time out. Because I have something to say to you. The Holy Spirit says, not your pastor, not your parents, not your friends, the Holy Spirit says, beware. Beware of a heart of unbelief. Notice again what our text says in verse 12. Beware Unbelievers? No. Beware, brethren. Beware those who are partakers of this heavenly calling. Beware those who are partakers of Jesus Christ. Beware, church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not to sit back this morning and say, well, this must be a message for those unbelievers among us who really don't know the Lord in truth. And it is. It's a message for you and me alike. Believers and unbelievers alike. God pulls up his whistle and he says, the Holy Spirit says, beware of unbelief. I want to see this exemplified and then examined in our own hearts and then see how we are exhorted through this. Three thoughts. First, beware of unbelief and see it exemplified. Secondly, examined. And thirdly, exhorted. Verse 7, the Holy Spirit says, and he takes us to Psalm 95. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works 40 years. He takes us to an example. The example of the Israelites in the book of Exodus, where the people of Israel had been delivered from the bondage of Egypt to a great display of God's almighty power. And as Pharaoh pursued them, the Lord caused the Red Sea to open so the Israelites could go across on dry ground. And the the Pharaoh, who hardened his heart against God, saw the sea crashing in upon him and his chariots. You think, wow, the Israelites, they were going out of Egypt with God's mighty hand. They began well. A couple chapters later, chapter 16. We read that as they come through the wilderness, they're being tested and tried by God, and they're getting hungry. And they complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Oh, that we would have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. There at least we had these pots of meat, and and we ate bread in full. But you brought us into the wilderness to kill us. That we would starve to death. They soon forgot the bondage. They forgot the groanings that they had in Egypt. And now we're lusting after the flesh pots of Egypt. What did God do? Oh, He was very gracious, wasn't He? He gave them manna from heaven. Day by day they could eat. That should be enough then to convince the Israelites of God's that God is with them, Right? Well, Exodus 17 begins the same way. They continue on through this wilderness. And here, now, they are thirsty. Exodus 17, Therefore the people contended, rebelled against Moses, and said, 
Give us water that we may drink. Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me and tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water and complained against Moses. And Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? They're ready to stone me. That's how upset they were. Again, God graciously brings Moses to a rock that he would strike the rock with his staff and water would come out from it. And the place was called Mesa Mesa and Meribah, which means testing and contention or rebellion. And this is what the author of Hebrews is picking up on, this testing of their time in the wilderness, of their trials, and how they contended and rebelled against God. But maybe we can understand, can't we? When we get hungry and thirsty or sick, we become filled with fear because, humanly speaking, we can understand this. But the evidence that the Israelites had been seeing pointed to a God who cared for them and all of their needs. But their human nature and their fear gripped them. Caused them to faith, have faithlessness. A lack of faith. Rather than to obey God's command, they wanted a a captain who would lead them back into the slavery of Egypt. Murmured against Moses. Murmured against God for bringing them into the wilderness. And they lusted after their old luxuries and food and comforts they had in Egypt. This fear drove them to not see the reality of who God was. And that gets exposed even farther in Numbers 14 with Israel's greatest revolt against the Lord, the greatest rebellion against Him. Where in, in Numbers 13, we know the story well, don't we children, how, how a, sp- a spy was called out from each tribe and these 12 spies went and checked out the land of Canaan, the promised land, and Ten of the spies come back and and they bring a a negative report, a faithless report. What did they say in Numbers Numbers 13, verse 27? They said, We went to the land where you sent us, and it truly flows with milk and honey and is full of fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Giants were there. They even said later that The land was covered like grasshoppers in their sight. There were so many in their sight. They were afraid, filled with fear. The mountains became insurpassable. But what did Joshua and Caleb say? Well, Caleb quieted the people and said, Let us go up at once and take possession. We will overcome them. And Joshua goes on to say, uh, late in the next chapter, let's not rebel against God. We don't need to fear the people in the land, for the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And as the people were ready to stone Joshua and Caleb, because they stood up against their unbelief and their faithlessness, what happened? glory of the Lord appeared in his tabernacle. And the Lord called out to Moses, and I can almost imagine it had to have been a loud call. How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I performed among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Moses went to plead with the Lord for the lives of the people. And yet, the people had a hard heart. Do not harden your heart as in the rebellion 
says the author to Hebrews. What is that hard heart? The irony here is Pharaoh continued to have a hard heart. He, He would see the works of God in the plagues and he would harden his heart and And again and again, another plague would come. But here, Israel is no better. Their hearts are hardened. We recognize a hard heart is the opposite of a soft and tender heart. A heart that surrenders to God in faith. And rather it rebels and says, I know a better way. And I will do it my way. I'm not going to do it God's way. I'm going to put my confidence in man and not in God. Despite all the evidence that I see everywhere of how God is bringing us out of Egypt, how He's opened up the Red Sea, how He's poured out manna from heaven, how water has flown from a rock, I will do it my own way. That's unbelief. A hard heart. A hard heart that will be judged. And therefore the Lord swears in His wrath in Numbers 14, that they shall not enter his rest. The nation of Israel would enter the promised land, but none of this generation would be left when that happened. Instead, they would wander 40 years in the desert. And only when the last of these rebellious adults had died, leaving only Joshua and Caleb who trusted the Lord, the people would be permitted into the promised land. Raises a question, doesn't it? Does this mean that all these Israelites suffered God's eternal wrath? That they not only died in the desert, but that they also went to hell? Well, on, on the one hand, The death of those unbelieving Israelites is certainly meant to point to God's wrath and His greater judgment that He will send men and women who die in unbelief to hell forever. But on the other hand, we also need to remember that the Bible here doesn't tell us that they were condemned to eternal damnation. There still was a day today to repent. And and many of these individuals possibly did repent and trust in the Lord and were received into glory. And yet, they could not enjoy His salvation and His promised land in their lifetime. Doesn't God also do that for us sometimes? When we walk in unbelief and disbelief. And we need to pray, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And and, and we're deprived of the, the, the promises. We're deprived of the goodness of God and the grace of God and in a life in Him and His nearness and His presence with us. Doesn't God also judge us? To bring us to repentance before it is too late. As He says, today... And it also reminds us that a good beginning doesn't necessarily mean a good ending. The reality is sprinkled throughout Scripture. There's warnings about Judas, who was one of the twelve. There's warnings about Demas. There's warnings about Israel. In other words, there's no room to presume upon our status as a member in the church or anything else. There's no room to presume upon our good works. There's no room to presume upon anything or anyone else except that apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ, and to cling to Him in faith. To go forth in the confidence that Joshua and Caleb had. Confidence in God. A God who makes the impossible possible. And who says, fear not, for I am with you. You can go in my strength. That's the example we have from the Old Testament and the Exodus. But let's look at how that applies to us a little closer today as we examine unbelief. 
for what it is. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. You see, the Exodus is a picture of our spiritual journey, isn't it? Yes, we haven't been brought out of the land of Egypt like the Israelites have, but we have been delivered from the bondage of sin, of Satan, and the world, and are on the way to an eternal promised land. And this time, in the wilderness as it were, in our present life, is a time of trials. It's a time of testing. It's a time that's often riddled with afflictions and sorrows and pain. And we all have these questions come to our mind, don't we? Why does God allow all of these things to happen and go wrong in my life? Why do things need to be so difficult? Why do these tests and trials need to keep coming upon me? Well, the trials are meant for a purpose. God has His purpose in them. And we shouldn't shy away from them necessarily, nor should we go and and jump into them. But we ought to realize that God uses them to manifest the reality of faith in our life, or the lack thereof. There's a clear difference between the testimony of Joshua and Caleb and the ten faithless spies, wasn't there? They were presented with the same test. They saw the same people in the land. They saw the same fortified cities. And yet they came back with two very different perspectives. One of faith and the other of faithlessness. The testing distinguished it. It it, it exposed the reality of faith and the lack thereof. Pink writes this in his commentary. Testings reveal the state of our hearts also. A crisis neither makes or mars a man, but it does manifest him. While all is smooth sailing and we appear to be going along quite nicely in our life, we need to ask the question, but are we? Are our minds stayed on the Lord, or are we instead complacently resting in His temporal mercies? When the storm breaks... It's not so much that we fall under it as that our habitual lack of leaning on God or walking in dependence upon Him is made evident. Therefore, Jonathan Edwards wrote, trials have a tendency to distinguish between true religion and false religion. True professors and false professors to cause the difference to appear. That's what's exposed in the wilderness. When things go bad, when we experience trouble, we become afraid and and it's easy to begin to complain against God and to blame God, to doubt His power and to doubt His care for us. That's the Israelites' example, but that's our example in our own hearts so often. We need to make it our goal to glorify God in all things, including afflictions, and to do so with faith before a whole arena of the watching world. Because if we don't, this unbelief can grow in contempt to God, and it makes us look like an ugly family of rebellious children with hard hearts. faithlessness. It it leads to negativism. And all of a sudden we see the grasshoppers even as the ten faithless spies did. It makes the small mountains unclimbable and the miniature seas uncrossable. This negativism It produces complaining. Numbers 14, they complained, said at least four times, grumbling, complaining, complaining, complaining. Complaining is very clearly a a flag of unbelief. 
A flag of ingratitude toward God out of an unbelieving heart. Of being unthankful. Isaiah diagnoses this, especially in Isaiah chapter 1, how the people have gone astray in their heart because they didn't know God's ways. He says this, the ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my own people do not understand. They've gone astray in their heart. They begin to see things negatively and complain against God. And that complaining, it leads to arguments and fighting as rebellious children. We're not left in the dark as to what a hard heart is in the Bible. As a matter of fact, a hard heart is simply a heart that originates out of a heart of unbelief. That despises God. And turns to very clear behavioral patterns. Negativism. Complaining. Fighting. Rebellion. An unbelieving hard heart is put up as a mirror this morning as God blows his whistle and the Holy Spirit says, as he calls you and I to a timeout, he says, look in the mirror. Do you see yourself? Do you see your heart? What's the pulse of that heart? Is it a spiritual pulse of faith? Or is it as hard and dead as a stone? What's the remedy for a hard heart, if that's what you conclude? The remedy for a hard heart is one that needs to become faithful and tender and submit to God. And and the only way that can happen is to know God, to know His power, to know His faithfulness. And to believe Him and trust Him in it. Isn't that the difference between Joshua and Caleb and the ten other spies? They knew the power of God. And they believed it. Your congregation, we, we need to be growing in our knowledge of God. We need to be growing in our understanding of God. It's not because of a lack of evidence of who God is and what He's done. We have it all, even more than the Israelites. But are we students of God's character? Are we learning what God would do for us in the various circumstances that He places us in? Is He manifesting His power and His grace in our lives and through our lives? You see, there's nothing more important to be studying who God is. His character. And to get to know Him better so that we can trust Him more. You see, when we fill our thoughts with who God is, we learn to rejoice even in the midst of trials. We learn how to discern the trials that are given by Him to draw us closer to Him. See, so often we want a life of luxury. And we feel as if we're un, we feel as if we're entitled children, as partakers of that high heavenly calling. And we're not willing to submit and surrender to the giver of all of these gifts, to the builder of the house. To King Jesus. 
And when God sends us the trials in life and the challenges, and the sun begins to beat on us in this wilderness, and we get hungry and we get thirsty, and when we see the hills and the mountains and the grasshoppers in front of us, we resort to our own human understanding. A man-centered understanding. And we rebel against God. Because we went away astray in our hearts. And have not known the ways of God. We have this warning. They shall not enter my rest. This morning we're advised, therefore, to hear this exhortation. Beware, brethren. Beware, brothers and sisters, partakers of that heavenly calling. And first of all, then, we're exhorted as we see the exhortation that's set before us. We're exhorted to consider, in the context, the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. It's the Apostle who's speaking, who's sent out. It's He who is speaking to us today in these last days. And He's speaking to us as a high priest, one who understands us, one who was tempted like us, as we find in the chapter before. If we have become partakers of Christ, and we hold fast to Him, and confidence, steadfast to the end, then we will know His salvation. But not only are we exhorted to consider Jesus Christ, we're we're exhorted to beware of an evil heart of unbelief, secondly. Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you having an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Beware, lest any one of you would be departing. It means to apostatize. It means to go away from the faith. It means to reject God. It means to say, His works are not powerful enough for me. That departing leads to ruin. Beware if you also would have an evil heart of unbelief and depart from the living God, because what would it be to fall into the hands of the living God? We find that in Hebrews 12. Sorry, Hebrews 10. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Beware of an evil heart of unbelief, like we just exposed in our second point. We're exhorted to beware. Thirdly, we're exhorted to exhort one another daily. Verse 13, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Having given that solemn warning, beware brethren, he now exhorts us to To exhort one another. What does that word exhort really mean? It's to come alongside one another. And it's to call out to one another. Just like I I use that example of the mom calling out to the child that's getting close to the road. Come back, come back, come back. As the child gets a little closer, the mom goes out, comes alongside and pulls it back. That's what we're called to do for one another. You see, Christianity, using my other example, is not some kind of individual endeavor, but it's a team endeavor. It's a team endeavor. Team, apostle, and high priest of our confession. if it's a team endeavor, 
We ask ourselves, are we, are we playing a team sport? Satan wants nothing more than to isolate Christians and keep them in their own little areas and, and not have each other. Satan wants nothing more. Because then they can't play as a team. But see, Christianity is not an individual effort. It's a team endeavor. And while it is called today, in the very day of grace, in every day of grace, we are called to encourage one another daily. Not just on Sundays, but every single day. Today, brother, today, sister, listen to His voice. You know what happens when you have individuals Individual coals set out and they're, 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 they're glowing red with heat and fire and passion, as it were. And you have these coals spread out. One coal's here, another coal's there, another coal's here and there. These coals die out very quickly. And they don't burn up with all the energy that there was in them. But you keep those coals together and you keep them flaming together and heating one another. That's what's necessary in the Christian life. We need each other for mutual encouragement so that Satan would not come in and steal our hearts through his deceitfulness. Maybe I can just ask the question. Not, not just if we gather together and encourage one another, but do we actually gather together regularly? Do we, do we confess our sins to one another? Do we open our hearts to one another? Do we help expose the hardness and the unbelief in our own hearts to one another? And do we say, brother or sister, help me? Because I believe, but so often my heart is filled with unbelief. I need your help. Do we direct each other to the gospel? Or do we think the gospel is only for those who need to hear it once in their life, at the very beginning of their Christian life? No, it's not. What we do is we encourage each other with the gospel day by day. While it is yet today, hear His voice. He's speaking to us today of a good news of a crucified Savior for sinners who are filled with unbelief, who takes and smashes hard hearts by His power and His grace. He gives good news to sinners that He has conquered sin and He has overpowered Satan. And though we walk through this wilderness here below, we can encourage one another in the Gospel to be guarding ourselves against the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You see, we have to understand that the gospel is given for sinners who are sold to sin, who are in bondage of sin, who recognize sin is no match for me. Satan is the great deceiver and I have a deceptive heart. How could I ever fight against sin? Isn't that true? Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately wicked. Who could understand it? And Satan himself is that great de deceiver who's loosed into this world. Sometimes even masquerades around this world as an angel of light. Oh, let's never be tempted to play with sin. And Satan. Because combine this with the reality that sin itself is deceitful in its very nature. Even as sin advertises itself as pleasure and only delivers pain. You see, we are no match. And the problem of our hearts is that we are so easily deceived. And Satan is a deceiver who knows it and allures us by the deception of sin itself. We must realize 
sin is no match for us. And sin isn't just something we do once in a while, but sin is a power. It's an evil enemy. It's like a, one commentator said, a pack of wolves surrounding the flock to see once if there's any targets he can pick off. That's why we need to be together. To encourage each other to cooperate together as one body, as one in the Lord Jesus Christ, one spiritual house that he is building to his glory. We are his house if we remain steadfast and confident to the end. Because what happens if we don't? Our deceptive heart grows into a hard heart, a desensitized heart. When the media and everything of this world comes and desensitizes us to sin and the truths of God's Word fade in the background, we are only left to fall into the hand of a more than willing adversary to be clutched in the jaws of him who goes about like a roaring lion. But let's think about that. What happens when we exhort one another? When Christians are gathering together in prayer and Bible study and meaningful fellowship, oh, what a bulwark that is against sin and Satan in this world and all of its deception. God uses His people to cause us to persevere by bringing the gospel, motivating us by the gospel, and even motivating us by warning against the judgments of God. Isn't that what we're also to exhort one another? Is to soberly reflect on the judgments of God. Verse 16 through 19, let's just read it briefly. For who, having heard, rebelled? Was it? He's asking questions. And he's answering them with rhetorical questions. For who, having heard, rebelled? Wasn't it those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? He's saying, everyone who died in the, is, is, in the, in the wilderness, they, they all exited Egypt with great expectations. And he says, with, with whom was he angry 40 years? It was with these same people who had sinned and whose bodies are now corpses in the wilderness. They, they perished because of unbelief. And the third question, verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? Those who were disobedient. Those who rebelled because of unbelief. We can ask ourselves these questions as we hold up the mirror. Have we experienced the exodus, the spiritual exodus that there is in Christ into His house? Do we know Him as the only mediator between God and man? Is our confidence in Him, the apostle, the high priest of our confession? Are we nourished through His Word? Are we nourished and encouraged and motivated through the fellowship of the saints? Are we learning from the examples in the past as we travel through this wilderness here below to the eternal heavenly rest? If we do so as partakers of Christ, as part of His spiritual building, we will pre- persevere in faith and obedience, holding firmly to the end the confidence there is in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes to the Corinthians, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be aware that I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. 
They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things, says Paul, become our examples to the intent that we should not lust after the evil things as they lusted. These things are for our example. So that we would examine ourselves and that we would exhort one another. Beware. Brethren, amen. Let's pray. Lord, keep us from a heart of unbelief and faithlessness and hardness of heart. Grant unto us a heart that loves you and desires to serve you faithfully, even as Moses went about your house serving you. Give us a heart that desires that eternal rest that there is in an eternal promised land. And go with us through this wilderness below, giving us spiritual friends, brothers and sisters to warn us, to exhort us, Give us your word and continue to give us your word. And blow that whistle as our coach say stop and listen. Lord, preserve us to the end. May it never be said of any one of us that we started the spiritual journey well and perished. Lord, may these warnings remind us to know in whom we have believed and to be certain of that hope until the last day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.